What up, what up? Jimmy Murray here with Frank Patalano, and we are the Cashflow Kings. The Cashflow Kings podcast discusses money, finance, mindset, and investors, investing with an emphasis on cash flowing real estate. Thanks for joining the Cashflow Kings, and welcome to our new episode, Market Timing with Jonathan Twombly. We're here to help you crush your goals in real estate and beyond. So guys, thanks for listening in. Um, we appreciate you always listening in and and listening to our advice. Uh, we just ask if you like this episode, if you could give us a share on social media, leave us a review on iTunes or Google Play. It would sincerely help us reach others and help them crush their goals, as Frank said. So uh, I very much want to welcome a uh, good friend of mine from the New York City area. His name is Jonathan. Jonathan, welcome. Thanks for having me, guys. So uh, Jonathan uh, is a big real estate. Uh, I won't use the word guru because some people uh, have a negative connotation about that. Yeah, including me. <laughs> yeah, but he's very much. Yeah, I know. That's why I said it. But he's very much a mentor to many investors around the country and has a great Facebook group he can talk about a little bit. But uh, we just want to have him on talking about where we are in the market and timing. And uh, just to start out, Jonathan, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you did before real estate? Yeah. So before I got into real estate, I was a lawyer on uh, mostly on Wall Street here in New York City doing uh, commercial litigation. So essentially, I was you know, representing big companies fighting against other big companies over big piles of money. Uh, and at the end of the day, they would always settle. Uh, and uh, But at the end of my career, I, well, when I say end, like the last five years of my legal career, I spent uh, representing hotel owners in litigations against the hotel chains. So probably a lot of people don't realize this when you go to like a Marriott, Hyatt, whatever, really, none of the hotels, none of those chains actually own that real estate. It's all owned by some other ownership group and it's either operated as a franchise with the flag on it or sometimes even with uh, or the flag managing it or sometimes with like a third party managing it. I mean, it's, it's all mixed up. It, none of those are owned by, by the hotels. Interesting. Uh, and there's a lot of litigation uh, between the owners and, and the hotels. So we represented hotel owners in those fights. And I, as a result of that, had a lot of exposure to kind of how real estate deals are put together because I would see the structures of these deals uh, from, you know, when we were in litigation, because you'd have to understand the structure uh, to kind of fight it out and be part of it. So I got a lot of exposure that way. And I had some, occasionally some smaller real estate matters uh, not dealing with hotels, just dealing with other, you know, I litigated some personal guarantees, like all kinds of stuff like that. So I had a, a kind of good window onto these things as uh, on the falling apart side of them, which is kind of an interesting perspective. Uh, but I did that for about 12 years altogether. And in 2011, um, I, so when the great financial crisis hit, you know, typically when you have a financial crisis, you get a lot of litigation because everybody's looking for a scapegoat. The financial crisis was so bad that people didn't even want to pay to fight with each other. And we were waiting for this great wave of litigation to hit and it didn't. Uh, and after two years of waiting for it to hit with me basically sitting on my hands doing nothing and making a lot of money, uh, my firm decided like, hey, we don't really want to pay you anymore, uh, which I totally understood. Um, I wouldn't have paid me either. Uh, so they, they let me go in 2011. Um, I'd spent like literally two years at my desk looking at, at uh, like triplexes in Albany, New York and trying to figure out how to underwrite them. That's like all I did all day for two years as I was getting paid like, you know, ungodly amounts of money uh, to, to surf the internet. 
um, this honestly, this sounds a little bit, not, not at the same scale, but a little bit like me when I was in the corporate world and I didn't have enough to do. And I pleaded, I'm like, Hey, give me more work. Give me more work. And, uh, I ended up finding bigger pockets and, uh, just ended up running deals all day and looking at real estate constantly. Yeah. I wasn't asking for more work cause I didn't, you know, I never knew what was worse. Like, you know, not <laughs> having work or having work cause I really didn't right. like it very much. Um, <laughs> but when they finally got around to, uh, to laying me off, uh, in 2011, uh, I really, I was just mentally just done. I was, I'd been checked out of that career for a while and probably the, the financial crisis actually, you know, prolonged my career in the sense that I, once that hit, I was happy to have a job and I kind of wrote it as long as I could. Um, but by 2011, I was just, I was mentally cooked. And when they, terminated me i remember they, they always terminate you with two people right because they want to have they don't never want it to be a one-on-one -on -one conversation so you always get terminated by two people and um and like those two guys were like so apologetic and like it was all like and i was like guys like it's fine like i'm you did the best <laughs> thing for me ever because i'm so happy to get out of here um with severance too so i was going to um, say that because you're leaving with severance and then maybe some other former financial yeah. It was like severance plus they paid for like career coaching for me. Plus, you know, it was like all kinds of stuff. It was great. That's awesome. So, um, so you jumped into some triplexes in Albany or what? Well, I, I didn't, I did actually at that time or maybe just before that. Um, and we could talk about this too later if you want, but I had this theory, a lot of my, a lot of my real estate investing theories kind of got started in this time, but I had this, this theory that there's this town called Newburgh, New York, which um, is on the Hudson River. And I don't know if you guys know this place. I-84 goes right through it, uh, right where the Hudson River, you know, where I-84 crosses the Hudson. And basically, like every other town along the Hudson River had had some kind of like renaissance, mostly sort of tourist driven, people buying second homes. There, you know, there are a lot of like these sort of mini Brooklyn's up on the Hudson, in the Hudson Valley. And you know, people were moving up there and renovating brownstones. And so I had this idea that, um, that, that Newburgh, which has like beautiful architecture in it was going to be next basically because it was the only one that hadn't experienced gentrification. So I, and a partner went up there and looked around and looked at some deals. Um, we decided not to invest and, you know, good thing we didn't because 10 years later, it still hasn't come back. So, you know, the idea of like, you think you're, it was a pure speculation on my, on our part that like, Oh, this is gone. This, this has to gentrify because everything else around it gentrified. Well, that was wrong. And it's a good thing we didn't buy there. Um, it might've gotten some, some price of, of appreciation just because of all the money that's pumped into the system. Okay. But um, there was no, there's really almost no gentrification to be had. So uh, I started looking at a lot of real estate and doing a lot of real estate networking and trying to find my way into some kind of, um, real estate position, since I'd always worked in a big corporate enterprise, I just sort of assumed I would go and work for some private equity fund or some real invest, real estate investment fund. And, and as I was going around trying to talk to people, I kept on getting the same response, which was, you're, you know, no one's going to hire you. Um, right. you're, you're too old. And there are, you know, thousands of guys on the street now who are not career changers, you know, who've been doing this for 20 years, who are looking for jobs. Those are the guys who are going to get hired. It, you know, if anybody's going to get hired now. Right. And um, 
the only thing that, you know, maybe you'll get lucky and someone will want to partner up with you. And that's basically what happened. I, I, in the course of these travels of all this networking, I ran into um, a woman who was start doing it, wanted to put together a, an investment startup and she asked me to join her and I went around and kind of, I didn't really know how to evaluate this um, or her. So I took her around to a bunch of friends who were very financially sophisticated and let them do my due diligence for me. And the upshot of that was them all saying, well, if you decide to partner with her, we'll give you money. So I thought, well, maybe I should try this. And that, that was how I actually got into it. And the funny thing was, since my whole mindset was all like, you know, I was looking at Brownstones and Albany and Newburgh and, you know, wishing I could sort of salivating over Brownstones in Brooklyn that I felt were like way beyond my ability to buy. Um, when I hooked up with her, once we had actually decided to like work together, then she sprung it on me that we were going to be buying like hundred unit deals in Louisiana and syndicating them. And I had no idea a, that you could do that. Like really you could buy a hundred unit deal. Like how, how is that possible? Uh, B like this whole syndication thing. I had no idea what that was. Although once I, once it was explained to me, I was like, Oh, that's, that must've been what they were doing with those hotel deals that I saw. That must've been right. a syndication. Um, and uh, so we jumped into trying to buy deals in Louisiana and Texas and had a couple under contract, but we were never able to get them across the finish line because the, the, the lending environment, this is now like 2013, the lending environment was still really, really bad. And we actually had lenders back out on us uh, at the last minute. Uh, so, you know, there was a lot of pain and, you know, gnashing of teeth around That's that. Right. We, we lost a lot of money um, of our, out of our own pockets because we couldn't close those deals. But um, that was and my introduction to the business. When you say last minute, I mean, you're literally saying like the day before, right? Stuff like that. It wasn't quite the day before, but I mean, it was, we didn't have, we got to the very end of the process. Like they didn't, the lenders didn't, uh, you know, look at the deals and say, oh no, we won't do it. We had a term sheet. We had gone through all of the financial due diligence. Everything was fine. And then the lender sent their, you know, they always send some really junior person down to look at the deal as like the very last thing they do before they, uh, you know, actually wire to, or fund the money. Yeah. Uh, and they, when that guy came back, they said, we're not doing your deal. And it was just crazy. St I mean, when I talked with people later about this, they were like, you got hosed. I mean, this was just a pretext. Um, they, there was, you know, the, the stuff that the guy cited was like, uh, the breezeways were dirty. And I mean, honestly, the breezeways were dirty. There was a, a, there was a golf course next to this property. They said uh, there was a, we've, I found a broken window with a golf ball from the golf course next door. I mean, this is like not material stuff. And then, oh, yeah. and there's, and there's 10 down units. And we're like, well, yeah, that's why we're buying the deal. We're buying right. it at, at the price. We're getting this huge discount and we, we've, you know, we're, this is part of our under, underwriting. This is the value add on this deal to bring these right. back up, you know, up to, and the deal worked even without them. If we did nothing, the deal was going to cash flow like crazy, but they were just looking for some reason to get out. And we never really knew what that was, but we were out all of our due diligence expenses, legal expenses, you know, they still charged us all of the due diligence fees. We got some of them back because they didn't use all of it, but they, all that, that uh, deposit that we put down with the lender, you know, we, we got back about 25% of that. It was, it was very painful. So. 
it's a nightmare. Yeah. But yeah. sounds like a great learning ex- experience nonetheless. Oh yeah. I mean, I learned so much on that deal. Um, just, I mean, we took a deal almost to closing. So through the whole syndication process, everything, you know, due diligence, which we did largely ourselves, we yeah. hired a due diligence consultant to work with us because we wanted to learn how to do the process. Um, so we sort of tagged along with them, but uh, you know, learned how to do a lease audit. I mean, it was, it was a very, very good learning experience. And um, yep. even though it was a painful financial experience. So what's, sure. what was the next step after that? Did you like um, give up on that and go back to law or what happened? Well, I did. I thought, you know, so what happened was along the way we had, we had discovered some, some sort of philosophical differences about this. I mean, it wasn't even about real estate. It was just sort of like how you, how you run a business and stuff. And we, and so we decided like, okay, we, we lost these two deals. It's probably a sign. Maybe we should just go our separate ways. So we just, we wrapped it up and I did think like, well, what am I going to do now? Am I going to have to go back to law? I went and sat down with one of those friends who was going to invest with me before and said, and I was like, Hey, I think I may have to go back to law. I don't know what else to do. He's like, don't be so hasty. Why don't you and I form a business together? So that was how Two Bridges got started. He became, you know, primary investor in that. And awesome. that started up in, in 2013. And then I was able to shift my focus to the Carolinas away from Texas and Louisiana and, and got traction at that point. It took a while, but that was where things started to kind of click together. What do you like about the Carolinas, especially for those people that are not in different markets? So I was attracted to the Carolinas because uh, this was, so in 2012, when I was still with my old partner, the new census data came out from from 2010. It takes about two years for it all to be assembled. The census data finally came out in 2012 and I just dug into that data. And, you know, what I was looking for were, were markets that were growing faster than the national average. And, you know, Texas was the obvious one. Everybody knew about Texas already, about how fast it was growing. I, I by personality, when everybody is doing something that makes me anxious and I just don't want to follow them. So since everybody was going to Texas, I thought, eh, why don't I look somewhere else? Uh, when I apply that sort of demographic lens to things, I mean, I basically applied like two two lenses to try to narrow things down. One was it had to be growing faster than the U S as a whole. And the second was it it had to be East of the Mississippi. And there was only one area that fit if you looked at it that way. And that was the Southeast. So So I I think that's really important because a lot of people think that it's going to be way levels more advanced than that. But if those are your two primaries or kind of primary decision-making tools to figure out where you want to head, I think it's important um, that we point out that it is that simple, right? I mean, listen, there are good markets everywhere and you can probably make, I mean, I always tell people to avoid markets that don't have good population growth. But if if you really, really know a market very, very well, I think you can make money in a market that's not even growing that much. You know, with, as long as I, I, I would tend to stay away from markets that are declining in population, but other than that, then outright decline, if you've got any kind of positive growth, you're probably going to be okay uh, if you know the market really well. But if you've got spectacular growth like the Carolinas had, uh, then that's going to cover a lot of errors. 
And, uh, right. and I think there's lots of markets around the country where you can do well. Then it becomes an issue of like knowing the market itself better, but you got to narrow it down somehow. And I always tell people like the ways you should narrow it down are population growth and how easy it is for you to get there. Right. And for me, like going to the Carolinas also was just so much easier than going to Texas or Louisiana that, you know, those, it took me like basically two days to get to a deal to, you know, to those deals in Louisiana when I flew down to Louisiana uh, and, and then like a day to come back. Whereas the Carolinas, I can fly to Charlotte on the first flight in the morning and catch the last flight back and get to most places in the Carolinas from Charlotte, you know, with a couple hours drive. Right. So, uh, and, and that's, that's what I do. So it makes it much, much easier to go look at deals and to not spend as much money looking at them. Uh, and, um, you know, so those are really, I think are like, if you're just making a first cut, those are the, the, the easy first cuts, population growth and, and then, you know, how far away it is. Uh, and maybe you're lucky enough to live in an area that has really good population growth and then you don't even have to worry about the second factor. Uh, then you got to dig in deeper to other things like, you know, what the jobs mix is, you know, how the, there's, there's other things to look at. Um, you want it to be a diversified economy. You know, you want to make sure you've got population growth, not just like on the, on the macro level, but on, uh, you know, cause there's pockets in every market that some are growing, some are not, you know, some are even declining sometimes uh, yep. with, within an MSA. I would just personally avoid those areas because why, why invest there uh, unless you really, really, really have specific local knowledge and, and you know yep. uh, you can overcome that population decline, but why, why, why swim upstream if you don't have to? So right. 2013 or so, you're deciding on the Carolinas. And uh, what did you do? Just like buy up like two or three properties like within two months or what ended up happening? I just flew over the state in a helicopter and dumped money <laughs> out <laughs> and, um, and saw what I got. No, uh, so $100 bills. $100 bills, yeah. So uh, no, what, this, was, this was hard, right? I mean, I had the money lined up, but I think what a lot of people don't get is that just having the money doesn't help get you deals, right? You right. have to, uh, you've got to figure out a way to get, get to brokers and it's not easy. Uh, you know, so what the way that I did, what I did was I had, I started using my network and I, I knew I had a bunch of friends in Charleston just by happenstance, like college friends and other friends and uh, just started asking them like, Hey, do you know anybody who, none of these people were in real estate, but I just started asking like, do you know anybody who's in real estate? In, in Charleston. And I got a bunch of introductions as a result of that and wound up meeting a guy who had a really, really long resume on the buy side in multifamily and had left the fund that he was working for and wound up hiring him as my kind of buyer's broker. But even doing that, it still was hard to break in because even though he had really good contacts, nobody knew who I was. Right. right. So, um, and he was representing me and brokers were like, who, so who is that? And um, so they were, they were showing us a lot of junk, you know, I mean, we were getting deals, but there just wasn't really much that was exciting. And they were, I was getting like deals from the 19, you know, like 1940s deals. I mean, just like crazy you know, stuff that I wasn't interested in buying. So they were throwing a lot of opportunities at you, but that doesn't mean they were any good. Yeah, and exactly. Just, yeah. What I think, I mean, the stuff, you know, the stuff too was like stuff that was on the market for a long time. And remember, this is like 2013. 
so it's a very different environment than it, it you know, it was up until recently. Right. Uh, there was a lot of stuff that was sort of languishing on the market because either it was overpriced because the, the sellers are still trying to get, you know, 2008 pricing on the stuff. Yep. Uh, there was, or it was really beat up and run down, you know, like just stuff that was in horrible shape or, you know, there are, there are markets even in South Carolina that are, that are not seeing the population growth. They're like, they look more like the Rust Belt than, uh, you know, than the Southeast. And so we saw lots of deals in markets like that, that were like, you know, wouldn't want to touch because the market was, was bad. And the, the breakthrough finally came when this guy sort of went outside the broker network that he had and called, turns out that one of his other business partners in some land, some uh, development deals they were doing had a sort of like, you know, that guy's best friend's daughter was a big commercial broker out in Greenville, South Carolina. Okay. And he was able to get an introduction to her. And so then I flew down and that's kind of like, that was what started the whole ball rolling. So it was like using the network to go through and get personal, you know, personal introductions, like not even business introductions, but like personal introductions through the back door. And when I flew down there uh, and, and met up with those guys, then that was kind of when the, the dam broke, I guess. And so we, yep. I walked in there, you know, I'd sent them all of my materials ahead of time. They had a chance to check me out. I was coming in through this very personal relationship. So it kind of walked in with legitimacy and, um, you know, went in there, we did our introductions. We chatted a bit about what I was looking for. And they said, you know, we just got this deal in yesterday. We haven't, no, nobody's even seen it yet. We haven't even put together the, the, the uh, offering memorandum for it yet. Would you like to take a look at this? And I said, yeah, absolutely. So we drove right out, drove the deal, uh, it looked a hundred times. It was a C deal, but looked a hundred times better than the stuff I almost bought in Louisiana. And, Interesting. Um, and I was like, yeah, I want to, I want to buy this. So we underwrote it, came up with a price and uh, the seller accepted and we were off to the races. And after that, you know, that was 102 units. We think it was a $4.1 million purchase and uh, syndicated to just one investor. And, um, after that, you know, then they just kept on coming back with, with more deals for us. So we wound up doing four in the space of about 11 months. Wow. Uh, it closed like, so through 2014, 2015. Talk about a shotgun start, huh? Yeah. You know, it was great. <laughs> yeah. uh, oh, yeah, so, but hold on. What was the difference between when you first started the side in the Carolinas to you bought that first one? How, what kind of time frame do you think that was? So that was, let's see, we started, I started in about February or March. No, I remember I went down to Charleston in March of 2013 uh, and met up with those, those brokers. And then the deal that we, it was like something like October of that year when we finally got that meeting in Greenville. And then, so basically a solid 10 months of hustling, looking yeah. at properties, doing the, doing all that work on everything. And Until then we finally got the first one. Yeah, finally got that first one. Then we closed it. So it was basically a full year. We closed it February 28th, 2014. So uh, it was basically a full year to, from starting to, to, you know, doing it full time to landing that, to closing that first one. So you, you bought about 400 doors. Yep. And then um, 
what happened there? Most people keep talking about leveling up, leveling up. Did you, what happened with you? What happened there? So there were a couple things. So uh, one was that um, the market really started shooting up like 2015, 2016. Um, And when I first was looking at deals in South Carolina, like there wasn't, really weren't having a lot of competition. You know, sometimes we're the only people to look at the deal. You know, they were all off market. To, they were all off market or sort of quietly marketed deals that we were looking at. And, um, but the, the pricing started getting a lot higher suddenly. And, and then, you know, I think a lot of people were noticing the demographic story in, in South Carolina. Uh, and then the other thing that happened sort of personally was at the same time, um, I hadn't spent enough time cultivating new investors. I was just really reliant on these couple of, you know, big guns that I had, these friends who were, you know, able to write seven figure checks um, and, and, and a smattering of smaller investors. And what happened, what I didn't anticipate was I did, I did get another deal under contract, really nice deal, like a half mile away from one that we owned already from a buyer that we bought from before, like they were very high quality flipper, did a really good job of flipping, but they would leave some meat on the bone for the next investor. You know, they were aggressive, but not overly aggressive in the pricing. So we had another 96 units under contract and um, both of my big investors were out. One of them was, one of them was a Japanese investor and he was like, hey, I love these deals when, uh, when the yen was trading at 90 to the dollar not so excited about it when it's 110 to the dollar. <laughs> yeah. So, um, which, 20%. and that had changed, that had changed a, a bunch. Uh, and then my other investor, you know, popped on me that he was getting divorced and basically everything, he couldn't do anything because he was in the middle now of a big you know, divorce. So we tried to, uh, so a bunch of things happened on the deal. So first was it just didn't have enough capital but, you know, I went ahead on the, like, well, if you find a great deal, the money will find you, you know, kind of, uh, kind of jaunt. And yep. we, we went into talks with some like private equity guys. We like, you know, scraped the bottom of the, the barrel trying to find investors. Um, we ran into a separate problem where the bank didn't actually understand what was going on with the deal because the, they, the, um, the seller had been carrying all this bad debt on their books from early on when they took on the property and they, they did a full like repositioning of the property. So they had a lot of bad debt from like tenants that just didn't pay in the beginning and stuff. Yep. And they, but they wanted to close by year end and for tax reasons, they had to write off all the bad debt and they did that all in the T3, right? The last Oof. three months before, before, you know, we were supposed to close. So the bank looked at the T3 and they were like, there's all this bad debt, you know, and so they would only give us like 65%. Oh my gosh. And we had underwritten it at 75% made our offer on that basis. And so when, you know, we had this conversation, should we go forward with the deal? And I was working with a couple of other partners on this deal. And, you know, we said, yeah, this is a really nice asset. You know, we asked ourselves the question, would we like to own this deal in 10 years? And we were like, we absolutely want to own this deal in 10 years. So therefore it's worth going forward with, even though the proceeds are lower, but, when we went to our, the investor group that we had, people said, well, they got skittish. So if the bank doesn't like it, then 
uh, you know, to show us the next one. And we went back to the bank and we did successfully get them to rate. We finally showed them what was going on and got them to underwrite the deal without all that bad debt. That wasn't, it wasn't new bad debt. It was all old bad debt. They raised their, their term sheet back up to 75%. But at that point, all of our investors had just sort of moved on from the deal. And we, then we were trying to get like some private equity guys in and we just couldn't get it over the finish line. You know, we actually bought more time to get an extension Oof. to raise more money. And we wound up having to just forego a part of our deposit. What and year yeah. was this about? This was 2015. Gotcha, so, gotcha. so right after that, you know, I was still looking for deals is really like, it was terrible. I was licking my wounds and it was, you know, feeling very shell shocked um, after that. But a couple of things happened. One was that I realized I really had to start focusing on expanding my investor base. Yep. And uh, the other thing was that, well, prices were now really, really, you know, skyrocketing. We'd kind of stretched on that deal, but we thought it was worth it. But then, you know, we we're continuing to get off market deals after that point, but the prices were just going nuts. And I remember, you know, ap- not too long after that, you know, the brokers bought us this off market deal. And I remember I stretched, I knew I was going to have to stretch a bit. I stretched beyond where I was comfortable. And I remember sending in the LOI. And the first thing I thought after I hit send on the LOI, I was like, Oh God, I hope they don't accept. And, um, and then the brokers came back, the the brokers came back and said, this is 20% below what they're looking for. Wow. And at that point I just felt like, you know what, it's getting really frothy out there. And this was 2016. Uh, and, um, you know, I, I really kind of took a step back at that point. Now, you know, I've been really waiting for a correction ever since then. I've been wrong about that for a long time. I'm still, frankly, surprised about being wrong about that. Um, um, maybe I'm just being obstinate at this point. But, so 27, 2016, you were a yeah. million dollars below what they were looking for, basically. 20% on a $5 million deal is about a million dollars. Yeah, yeah, and, basically. 2017, the prices are still going up. 2018, prices are still going up. Yeah. So you get to the point with some of these properties that you had to choose, like you said, some market timing. What did you end up doing with the ones you already had? Yeah, so I, I, so I basically decided I'm going to just sit tight and run the deals that we have and focus on bringing in more investors and, and figuring out how to do that. And that's, that's how I got started in social media and started building the Facebook group and uh, you know, that sort of thing. Um, the uh, let's see. So I, I was operating these deals uh, and you know, they were having a mixed level of success between awful and stupendous. Right. And that sort of like ran the gamut. And um, we had one property that just that first deal that I bought just, I mean, it was just such a dog. I mean, it wasn't, it just wound up having all sorts of problems, which, you know, now knowing what I know, I, I wouldn't, I'd be able to anticipate this better. But at the time, since I was new, you know, I just didn't really understand how much potential, you know, maintenance issues you would have on a 40 year old property, you know, and how many collections issues you'd have with C, with C deals and all sorts of stuff. So that, that deal was sucking wind in a number of ways. I mean, everything from like bad manager to black mold attack to the, for a while I was having uh, the, the water main burst of the month club, you know, where like, like every, I just got to the point where I was, every time I saw my property manager's phone on my caller ID, I was like afraid to pick <laughs> it up. Cause like, what, what is it going to be now? 
But you lucked out because all boats are rising? Is that what happened? Well, eventually, yes. But, but it still gets worse. Two fires, two major fires within a month. We lost oh, 10, wow. 10 units. And, and so my investor in that deal was like, look, just I don't care if we sell this thing at a loss. I just am tired of this. I want out of this thing. And um, I said, look, look, we got to wait a little long, longer. The market's rising. We can kind of like write the ship, make it look a little better. Um, I was getting unsolicited offers left and right for all the properties. Um, it was a little bit harder now to sell because this thing had just had a major fire and we're in the middle of like a rebuild. But um, in, in 2018, uh, there, a broker called and said, hey, look, we have a group that really wants to buy your property. In fact, they just want to buy anything. They're desperate for deals. And uh, I was kind of tired of fielding these broker calls. And I got, I just threw out a number, which is essentially designed to like make them <laughs> shut up and go away. Like I just, it was a ridiculous ask unintentionally. And he said, well, let me, let me ask my clients. And they, they came back and said, uh, we'll accept, they accept the offer. <laughs> so I thought, okay, this is probably the time to sell then if I got this price for these yep. assets. And so uh, that's what I did. We, we started that process in 2018, closed it in 2019. Um, it was a little bit of a, involved because of the fire issue and the insurance issues and stuff that we had, but we got over the finish line and that deal that, you know, my investor w was willing to sell for a loss, wound up giving him a 50% return. So that's wrong with that. But it's all, <laughs> that is awesome. But all because, but honestly, I mean, not because I did anything special because as Frank said, we had the wind at our back, right? I mean, just prices were rising uh, beyond what I thought, made sense uh but other people felt that they could make money and um you know that's we literally on that deal we got bailed out i think if 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 we had bought that deal this is sort of what i was warn people about if you bought that deal now and you had the same stuff happen to you plus you know any kind of even slight economic downturn i'm not even talking about what's going on with covid and stuff but just a normal downturn I mean, you'd be looking at foreclosure like, yep. without a doubt so um thank goodness that the timing was right on that deal because uh, it could have gone the other way. So, right. you know, I always tell people, you know, every, people look at real estate as if this is like a guaranteed easy thing. And it's not, it, it, it still matters when you buy, when you sell and what you pay for the thing in the first place. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. But uh, I, I like the kind of moral of your story. Sometimes it's better to be lucky than to be good. Um, but it, I'd rather think, be both, but, right. uh, <laughs> right. but yeah, no, but I mean, honestly, there's, I mean, there's something to be said for sticking it out too. Um, I think a lot of novice investors will throw their hands up versus trying to work through some of the issues. Like there's a very educated approach in terms of, all right, well, if we're going to sell, let's try to right the ship a little bit in order to get into that better position. And, um, you know, sometimes you just have to put up with the pain or push through the pain in order to get to that, that exit point. Well, what I love about Jonathan is, uh, he has definitely stuck to his numbers and his principles. I mean, you you guys have sold everything right now, basically, on the real estate investment real estate. Yeah, side. I'm like a really minor partner in a deal, but other than that, yeah. But um, all your GPs and everything. All the, the GPs, Canada. yeah. All the GPs, all that stuff. We sold everything, uh, and we haven't really seriously been looking at stuff since because the pricing, everything that just came across my desk, just didn't make sense. And, you know, unlike some people, I mean, I don't have a big operation, so I can't, I don't have the capacity to look at 200 deals to find, you know, one 
that works. And there, and, right. there, and anyway, there aren't 200 deals in the Carolinas to look at, right? You'd have to be looking right. all across the country uh, to find the deal that works. So right. um, I, I just decided it wasn't really the best use of my time, even though, look, I mean, people were willing to throw money at me to invest for them. Um, but I just, it just didn't feel like the right time for me because I just didn't feel like I could, I could get that I could buy deals at a comfortable margin of safety, especially knowing what I knew, like from experience uh, about how these deals can go sideways. Um, you know, like for one, one of the mistakes I made was that I didn't, I uh, didn't reserve enough on those deals. So I didn't have a big enough reserve fund because I was so focused on the returns. All I was thinking about was returns for my investor. So yep. I didn't want to, I didn't want to raise more. It didn't even occur to me, honestly, in the, for the first deal that I should raise extra money for a reserve fund. Yep. Uh, so, um, but like to think about how you would trying to square the circle of like paying the prices that people pay now, plus adequately reserving, you know, building in all of that margin of like just financially building in a, a margin of safety in cash and then trying to generate the return that the investor wants. Like, I don't know how you do that without either like really being aggressive in the numbers that you're putting in your pro forma uh, and, and, and hoping for the best or taking on a lot of risk and a lot of like financial engineering to try to massage the numbers. And, and I wasn't willing to do either one of those things. Jimmy and I talk about that reserve issue all the time because uh, we know a lot of investors that are just looking for the cash flow of the properties and they're hoping that that's enough. It's like, well, what if something needs to be fixed? Yeah. And these guys are looking for a check every single month on that property. Yeah, you and can't. So, you can't. There's a wrong mindset to go into a deal thinking, thinking about or looking for. Well, like you said too, Jonathan, with the whole, uh, especially with the COVID stuff going on right now, it's uh, it's kind of hard to buy a value add right now and expect to increase rents by twenty or thirty percent, um, much rents less going, at all. Rents are going down, right? I mean, the rents have actually gone down year over year by, I think nationally, like thirteen bucks. So it's the idea that you're going to look. We may return to that in in a in a few months. Who knows? But uh, you you'd be foolish to assume that you can get big rent increases right right now at this point in time. That sounds just like 2008. What do you mean real estate can go down? <laughs> <laughs> never, never. So uh, Jonathan, when do you think, what, what would have to change for you to be ready to start buying again? I'm gonna wanna see better pricing, to be honest with you. Like, you know, uh, when I was buying in 2013, 2014, 2015, you could buy C deals at a solid aid cap, right? That was normal. And that's really kind of where those deals, you know, if we're talking about suburban, you know, C deals, right? In smaller markets. That's where those deals had traded forever, you know, absent kind of the fluctuations that you get. It's all been pushed way down uh, by all this cheap money that we've had. And yeah. the, the problem with that, you know, there are a lot of people who just look at this and say, well, look, that this is, I can borrow at this and I'm buying at a five cap and I'm going to raise the rents a little bit. I'll be fine. The problem is there was a reason that C deals always traded at a, at a premium. You know, there used to be this thing. No, I, I haven't heard anybody use the phrase risk premium in a very, very long time. But you, 
those deals traded at a higher cap rate because investors required a higher risk premium. And I know personally why they do, because you have the water main break of the month club, right? In those deals, you have the non-paying tenants, you have, you know, that's just the stuff that breaks and goes wrong. And uh, so to be buying those deals at a, at a five cap makes no sense. Now I know everybody's saying, Oh, but then we're going to do value add and we're going to get it up to an eight. You used to be able to just buy the thing for an eight. Right. And then if you got it, if you did a value add, you could get the thing up to a 10 or a 12, right? That's what value add meant when I, when I started out, you're talking about like really crushing it on a deal, but you know, now it's like, Oh, we're, we're going to buy it at this ridiculous cap rate. We're going to like white knuckle our way through a, a value add to get it up to where we need to be to, you know, get the investors returns that we, you know, claim to be able to get uh, to Frank, to, to pay myself, you know, to, to build in a cushion, between us and default. And uh, I want to see better pricing um, before I get back in. And, you know, I'm dying laughing because Jimmy and I had a podcast that just the two of us spoke about and how people have been buying for the past two years with zero risk in mind, with zero oops factor, with trying to buy with almost no money down. (laughs) <laughs> and yeah. how, how they're going to make money on these is just crazy. So basically we need some kind of, um, like you need to have a drop in demand. It sounds like in order for that to happen. Uh, yeah. Drop in investor demand. Yeah. Right? right. Yeah. Yeah. There has to be, or, or it doesn't even have to be a drop in investor demand. It just has to be investors getting to be a little more cautious yep. and, and because that, and driving cap rates up because, um, you know, that's, that's what will change the pricing and, and anything that, you know, wasn't like, in 2008 uh, that there was uh, like people didn't want to rent apartments anymore. Right. Um, But there was a big drop in investor confidence that caused the prices to, to drop. Right. And uh, that's the kind of thing that, and there's a natural ebb and flow, right. You know, in in a normal economy, we just had this really unusual, really long expansion uh, and a really long real estate run up. And there's a, there's a whole bunch of reasons for it. But I think a lot of people took the mistaken uh, lesson that, you know, either real estate never goes down because they'd never seen it go right. down or that the Fed is always going to bail us out. Like, don't fight the Fed. People say, can't fight the Fed. You know, the Fed doesn't always have magic sauce. In 2008, interest rates were also at zero. You know, like people seem to forget that. Like they, they, they act as if, you know, all the Fed needs to do is drop interest rates to zero and everything will be fine. Well, they did that in 2008. And look, it took us years to recover after that. Right. So it's not just interest rates are here and the cap rate is here and I got a spread. And it's, I mean, this isn't like a, you know, like some kind of like straddle, option straddle where you're locking in, a, you know, you're, yeah. lock, you're locking in two, you know, the, the outflow and the inflow and you've got the spread locked in and nothing can change it. You know, they fluctuate together, but you've always got that spread. Real estate doesn't work that way. You know, your, your rents can drop. But the debt, the debt payment stays the same, right? And that's what I think a lot of people forget. Like, you're right. You lock in the debt long-term, that payment's going to be the same month after month after month. Right. It doesn't mean your income is going to be the same month after month after month. And if you're buying at a premium, you're not building enough margin of safety in to cover that, you know, anything that's happening. Right. So a lot of people were buying on the assumption that, you know, it's going to be great forever. And, you know, they weren't thinking about risk at all. And now yeah. I think some people are going to be learning a really, and, and nobody could have predicted this. I didn't predict this. I mean, I thought we were due for a run of the mill recession, but I mean, you know, what came out of left field at us 
is nothing that you know I could have predicted or hoped for or anything. You know, right. I certainly didn't hope for it. But um, I think there's going to be a lot of people, especially when the stimulus money runs out, who are going to be really wishing they had been more conservative in their underwriting. Yep, hundred percent. I agree with that. So, Jonathan, if uh, thank you for all your advice and knowledge. Uh, if someone wants to uh, become a better investor, what would you recommend? Uh, you know, really, where, like where to start? I, you know, uh, <laughs> buy, buy a twenty thousand dollars mentoring program. What's the best thing to start out with? Come on, go to that weekend seminar for tens of thousands. <laughs> I mean. <laughs> you look, you can learn at those things for sure. It's not, it's not like you can't learn from those. And there's a lot of people around there with a lot of experience. Um, I think that the danger of some of those programs is that they become a little bit of a, an echo chamber in yep. which everybody is saying, cause they're all vested. They've all spent all this money and now they've got to like justify the, the money they spent. And so there's a bit of a, you know, you, all you're talking to is a bunch of people who say real estate's great. It's great. It's great. And you don't get any perspective. Um, yep. So you can learn, but you got to take it with a grain of salt. Um, the, I mean, look, ed, it starts with education, right? You, you have to, you know, get your hands on a couple of good books and read them, right? And then start talking about- with other people who've done it before and like experienced people. People have been around for a while, not, not people who have just got into it since 2016, but people who have been around the block for a while, seeing the crash, like seeing can, what can happen, talk to them about their experiences, but and about how they approach things um, and, and be conservative. I mean, the, you have to, you know, at the, the, the really great investors who last a long time um, realize that the way to make money is to not lose money. Right. And so their focus is on not losing money, because if you can just avoid losing money, then the market will pretty much take care of the rest. But you but you have to but to avoid losing money, you have to be really conservative. And what happens is people get caught up in this feeding frenzy and they see people around them doing deals. And, and now because of social media, it's even worse than it was in 20 in 2008. You know, now there's bigger pockets. There's Facebook. There's. I think there are now a thousand real estate podcasts right now. I mean, it's like, you can't, if you're interested in real estate, you can be bombarded by it all the time. What you're bombarded by is by people bragging about deals they did and, and, and without context or the guys who are like, you know, I own 2,500 units and it's because, you know, they invested, you know, 10,000 bucks in five, 500 unit deals. Right. And, you know, as a passive LP, but everybody's bragging about it. And so for people who are on the sidelines, uh, you know, there's a, there's a lot of like fear of missing out. And I, I can't tell you the number of people who have come to me, even before I was doing sort of formal mentoring, just people who would hear me on a podcast and call me up and, you know, and say, Jonathan, like, what's wrong with me? Why can't I find a deal? And I'd tell, and even a few years ago, I'd tell them, you know, they say, I'm looking at deals and nothing makes sense. Like what's wrong with me? And say, like, no, no, you're, you're fine if things don't make sense to you, you're doing the right thing right now because things don't right. make sense. But right. you're listening to all these people, you know, in, in social media land, bragging about deals they did. And look, some of those guys are going to go bankrupt, right? Need so, all the haystack. Need all yeah, the haystack. Yep. But every, but, you know, I mean, Frank, you know this, I used to talk about this all the time, but, you know, 
sometimes it seems like people are picking a piece of hay out of a, out of a stack of needles, you know, because it's like, you know, everybody's got a needle in a haystack deal. Oh, this is the deal that works. This, it can't all work, especially no, at the top of the we've market. We've gone through 200 deals. and This is the one. <laughs> Listen, you know, I, I I'm seeing deals come back on the market, like for the second and third time, a couple of deals. Right. Yeah. And every time it's a value add, right. It's just, you know, when you see a deal coming back in the market, you know, for the third time and it's being shipped as a value add again. And I don't mean like the third time, work. like they couldn't sell it the first. I mean, like you've seen it sold two times. Yes. Through cycles. Yeah. Yeah. Bought and sold. That's and, crazy. Um, you know that like we're, we're near the end. So yeah. um, be cautious is, is my advice. Don't there you go. try to tune out all the stuff you hear and, you know, and look, I mean, like Warren Buffett has a great quote about this, which, um, which I, 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 this is not the exact quote, but essentially it's like, if you see everybody doing something, don't do that, right? The way to make money is to, if you see everybody doing something, do the opposite of what they're doing, you'll make money. Yep. And, and, and that is truer in real estate than anywhere else. Book 100%. recommendation, Jonathan. Book recommendations. God, I don't. Just one, anything you want. What do you consider a must read right now? Go and read Irrational Exuberance by Robert Schiller, who has won the Nobel Prize in economics. I'm going this on Amazon right now. All about- <laughs> I haven't heard of that one. Oh, you never heard? This is a great book because it talks about basically how uh, markets just operate on investor sentiment and pretty much nothing else. And he, and he talks about through the dot-com bubble, the real estate bubble, and it's a, it's a, it's a must-read for anybody who really- wants to try to get their head around markets. You know? I'm surprised. I thought you were going to say The uh, the War of Art. I've read that one. The yes. War of Art is yeah, also a, a great one. book. That is yeah. you know, not so much about markets. That's just about if you want to be a, a, if you want to run your own business. How to break through things. How to break through resistance. Because yeah. as, as a, when you're running a business, especially when you're on your own, it, it can be very hard to focus sometimes. And The War of Art is all about how you, stay focused you recommend that to me and i recommended that to jimmy that's why i was saying that um all right so let's see five years from now we joke what do you want to be when you grow up what do you see yourself doing five six years from now yeah i mean i see myself doing this five awesome. years from now but not by myself i would like to have a team under me so that i'm really focused on the high level stuff and i've got other people you know doing the uh the grunt work that's where awesome. i'd like to be Good stuff. So guys, we hope that uh, you really enjoyed this podcast with uh, Jonathan Twombly. Jonathan, if folks wanted to reach out to you, what's the best way to either get in touch with you or follow what you're doing? So I, as, as Frank said, I run a, a big Facebook group. We will hit 10,000 members within the next week or so. Awesome. Uh, it's called Multifamily Investment Community. It is 100% spam-free, BS-free, uh, Frank is actually one of my moderators. He helps me keep all of the spammers and the, the junk posters out of there. Uh, it's a great place just to learn. It's a good place to get to know me. Um, I also, I do a more or less daily email, uh, about real estate, but also about, you know, trying to encourage you to buy my course. Um, there's a free download if you want to get that and get on my email list. So go to multifamilylaunchpad.org and you can download the ultimate checklist to doing your first hundred unit deal with other people's money and getting paid to do it. Uh, awesome. It's an 11 page checklist just shows you every single step in the process. And that'll put you on my, my mailing list. And of course you can unsubscribe right away if you want to. That's fine. <laughs> Good uh, stuff. Yeah. 
So guys, definitely go check that out. Uh, multifamilylaunchpad.org. Yep. Um, in between time, if you want to hear more of the Cashflow Kings, check out our website at cashflowkings.com or give us a follow on Instagram where we post daily content. Cheers to your success. The Cashflow Kings program is for basic entertainment purposes only. We do not give official legal, tax, or investment advice.